Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 95. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And this week's show, man, what can I say? I have never done an interview while sitting in a news anchor's chair. I know that sounds ridiculous and dumb, but I encourage you to check out the blog, johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. And check out the photo. Because I'm sitting in the chair that has been occupied by Adele Arakawa for the last like 10, maybe even 15 years. And that's where I conducted this week's interview. I went down to the Nine News Studios and I sat down with Kyle Clark. Kyle Clark you can mostly find on 6, 9, and 10. 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And I would argue he's carved out a nice little niche for himself, especially in the social media space. Kyle Clark has a distinctive voice and at the end of this week's episode... I ask him if someone were to want to pursue a career in TV journalism or journalism at all, what he said was fake is done. Fake's over. That no longer works. You've got to be yourself. But in being yourself, you've got to be prepared for some people to not like that. And he's done an amazing job of carving an identity for himself in a very crowded news space. And I ask him about that. I ask him how his editorials come to be. Kyle Clark is obviously, probably, I say obviously, but I don't know, but is maybe most famous for his rant about photos of snow-covered patio furniture. Anytime it snows, people take photos of their patio set. And ever since he did that rant, he wakes up, he knows he's going to have his inbox just flooded with photos of patio furniture. But he's also had some more substantive editorials. Things like Bernie Sanders. He said, we want to cover more of Bernie Sanders, but I can't get them to call me back. It's almost like a call to action for the Sanders campaign. We spent some time talking about that. He recently did one on 420, so that's about a month ago now, about Denver's marijuana culture. Are we still going to be getting high in Civic Center Park? You know, is that an act of civil disobedience or is it just obnoxious? Where do you want this culture to go? And since I'm talking to a journalist, I think it's important that I give you full disclosure here. Now, I didn't know Kyle Clark before this. I'd never met him. Uh, I reached out to him. It was kind of a cold pitch. I said, hey, Kyle, I'm a fan of yours. I'm a big craft beer enthusiast as well. I know you are. Would you like to come on my show and talk about journalism, talk about craft beer, talk about anything you want? And he wrote back to me and he said yes. Now, that was about a year ago. took some time for our schedules to line up, but that's the way these things go. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, what's it like booking a guest? How, How does that process unfold? Sometimes it's really fast. I mean, I've done one as quick a turnaround of reaching out to someone and then interviewing them like two days later. In this case, I reached out to Kyle like last April and I interviewed him early May this year. So it's crazy how that will sometimes go. I have multiple things in the hopper at all times. You have to be, this is a monster that eats, but in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a fan of Kyle Clark and I think he's a good journalist and I think the work that he does matters. Now there's a link also on the blog post to an article written during the 2014 senatorial debate between, at the time, Representative Cory Gardner and then-Senator Mark Udall. And it asserted that Kyle Clark and his colleague at 9 News, Brandon Ritterman, should moderate all debates from this point forward. 
which is high, high praise, especially when it comes to local news, because you think of local news and perhaps your stereotype is that it's outmoded, that it's outdated, that it's been usurped by internet sources, whatever your assertion is, there's probably a number of preconceived notions that you have about local news. And I would argue that local news is almost more vital than ever because of the immediacy and the connection to the community. It's something that Kyle Clark shares. So I just want to get this out of the way. I'm a fan of his, but that didn't prevent me from asking him tough questions. Because if I'm interviewing a journalist and a journalist the caliber of Kyle Clark, I wanted to come in with some important stuff. So I asked him about when he was confronting Mike Kaufman or when he asked very pointed questions on the air of President Obama. The debate, Cory Gardner, Mark Udall, both of those guys took some licks. I asked him about the future of TV news. There's a lot in this episode. It's one I'm very, very proud of. And Kyle Clark is a guest to where I really want to raise my game. I know if I'm interviewing someone like him, who he himself is a very skilled interviewer, I need to come correct. You know, I got to show him my best stuff. So we had a friendly chat. We had a lot of fun. We spent a good chunk of this talking about beer which is always great, and you'll get some of his choice picks from around town, mine as well. And so if you're into beer, that's a really fun part of this. But more important than that, we talk about journalism, why it matters, what are we doing? Again, I'm enormously happy with this episode. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. If you're new to the John of All Trades podcast, welcome. The website is johnofalltrades.us. As I said before, J-O-N of alltrades.us. This is episode 95. I've actually got 98 episodes. 94 of them are numbered. Those are all with guests. And I've got three that I do solo. So from time to time, I'll take a solo, John. So welcome. Please check out the archive. We've got all kinds of great interviews with everyone from Wall Street hedge fund guys to hairdressers to entrepreneurs to creative people, a tattoo shop owner, a gun store owner. Uh, coming up next week is a former state legislator. Spoiler alert on that one. I don't normally do that. But in this case, it feels apropos. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Snapchat, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T pod. So check us out there. Twitter is where all the goofy stuff happens. Facebook, perhaps most important because episode previews go up on Monday. It's the only place you can find them. You get a head start on what's coming up on this week's John of All Trades episode. And this week, it's Kyle Clark, news anchor from Nine News, craft beer enthusiast, and what can I say? A cool guy. I really enjoyed chatting with him. And I wish him nothing but success. So let's get to this week's episode. Episode 95, Kyle Clark, starts right now. I don't believe anybody meant any harm. There was a person who stuffed a political manifesto into my door. And <laughs> like Kaczynski style? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that was just like, whoa. Am I glad that I didn't meet you at the front door? But I think most—I think most of the people are just people who don't understand social bounds, and it's like, oh, this guy that I feel like I know yeah, he, lives near me, so I'm going to go by his house. He comes into my home. Yeah, I, I think I think it's I think it's that, but it's scary. So. Well, sure. I mean, she's not in the public eye, yeah. presumably. Yeah. Wow, man, that's uh, that's crazy. Uh, for my boss's peace of mind. Okay. Be an issue, but I record every interview that I do. Wow, that's that's pretty smart, and you are. The second person who has recorded me while I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. It's funny because a lot of people, when I'll go out now to do an interview, right. will want to run their own recording. And they're always like, is it okay if I do this? I'm like, 
mean if it's okay? Of course it's okay. Like We're trying to be on the level here. To be honest with you, like, if I were you, I would never consent to an interview that I don't record. Like, you never you never know. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, it's why people feel like they're going to offend me. It's just like, no, I'm recording it. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you should have a record uh-huh. of the things that you do. Absolutely. There's a local comic named Adam Caton Holland. Oh, yeah, I know. Who, uh, he taught me to just hold the whole stand like this. And so, uh, he's like, this is a pro move. And I go, all right, well, I can handle that. I mean, this is a guy who holds a mic for a living. Uh Uh-huh. My first Christmas Eve in Denver was spent at an Adam Caton Holland comedy show. Oh, no kidding. jokes about Christmas and Jesus, and it was the saddest Christmas Eve of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the Squire Lounge? Oh, God, at the Squire, too? Was that drunk guy there who who heckles everyone? I think so. I think so. I, I, I've tried to I've tried to block it out in my mind. Actually, it was not that. It, there were some friends who took pity on me because I was all alone on my first Christmas Eve here in town. When was that? That would have been oh seven. Okay, and you've been you've been at Nine News that whole time, yeah. October of oh seven. Okay. Yeah. Have you always done evenings? I've done all kinds of stuff. Um, I started as a weekend general assignment reporter and did that for a while. Then I worked days for a while. Then I did feature reporting for a while. Then I did investigative reporting for a while. That's right. And then I anchored weekend mornings for three weeks. Okay. And then Ward Lucas retired. And then I started oh, doing weekend evenings. Okay. And then a couple of years later, started doing the nine, then the ten. So like I just kind of done everything over the time. It's funny. I saw Ward Lucas once in a Taco Bell. <laughs> and uh, that's where most people see work. <laughs> and uh, it was in Lakewood, and it's so funny. There's this, and I think The Simpsons touches on this pretty well. But the level of celebrity that local news personalities have, I think, is underrated. You know, it, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, am I wrong on that? Am no. I off? No. Where, where people see you and they're like, whoa, look at that. That's Ward Lucas. And he's getting a burrito. <laughs> he's getting a burrito. You know? Just like me. I'll have the word Lucas, please. <laughs> and the poor person behind the counter is like, the what? <laughs> you know, that guy. Does that happen yeah. to you? Oh, yeah. Um, so, like, when you're out at, at a beer festival, when I saw you at the um, Night to Remember, uh-huh. it seems like when you're dressed down a little bit and you're wearing a hat, does that give you some degree of anonymity? Camouflage? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I used to think, like, you'll have one of those days where, like, you just don't want to talk to people. You're having a bad day or whatever. So it's like, I'm going to go to Safeway, but I'm going to put a hat on and right. keep my glasses on or whatever else. And then invariably, somebody will be like, oh, hey, how's it going, man? You know, whatever else. And then you feel like a jerk. So so now I just – I go with the I go with the Carl Mecklenburg rule, which is if I don't want to talk to people, I don't go outside. Okay. Um, I don't know the whole story about Mecklenburg back during the, the strike season. I guess there was an okay. interaction with him and a young fan that didn't go well during the strike season. Oh, all right. But, but my application of his rule is I saw him in Times Square Super Bowl year in New York, and the guy was just getting mobbed as he was going down the street. It was like nothing I had ever seen before. So when he finally broke free of people, he was with his family. I stopped him, and I said, you know, I said, if you could just spare a minute for us, like, I just want to know, like, what's it like to yeah. be Carl Mecklenburg during Super Bowl week here in the city? And do you ever get sick of people stopping you and stopping your kid and this and that and everything else? And he just looked at me, smiled. He goes, it's all part of the deal. He goes, if I don't want to be social with people, 
then I don't go where people can be social with me. Wow. And if I'm walking down the sidewalk, then I'm consenting to stop and talk with every person who wants to talk with me. He had such a good attitude about it, and I just thought to myself, like, like that's what I want to do. If I'm in such a pissy mood that I don't want to talk to people, I just won't go yeah. where people are. I think that's fair. Did that enter into the calculus when you decided to be, like, a TV journalist? Was that something you considered? I don't think so. I mean, well, I started in radio. Okay. Um, I started in radio when I was in high school. I started doing sports radio and then eventually okay. ended up in television news. But the the visual versus the audio thing and the level of anonymity that radio might provide never once entered the equation. Although today mm-hmm. with social media, the radio guys don't have any anonymity. No. Everybody knows what they look like. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, if you're DMAC and you're walking down the street, like people are going to stop you and give right. you garbage. You know, I, it's all the same now. Right. Or if you're Willie B, who's built like, you know, like Schwarzenegger or something, <laughs> you're like, oh, wow, that's Willie B. Well, look at that. Yeah. He, does, he doesn't sound like his voice. No, he doesn't. I thought the same thing. I, I expected a guy who was kind of like overweight and shorter, you know, typical radio stereotype. Sure. And then you see Willie and you go, whoa, Willie is like jacked. Look at that guy. Yeah. I always love the... You're better looking in person. And I always, I just want to be like, stop for a moment. Let's, <laughs> let's stop and let's delve into this. Yeah. What type of steaming hot trash <laughs> do I look like on yeah. TV? I just love that comment. And, and it and invariably comes from women between the age of 55 and dead. Okay. <laughs> And I think they mean it as a compliment. I think they do. But I always just want to stop and delve into it and be like, let's talk about this. But that's like a Minnesota nice kind of thing. <laughs> like that's like, oh, you're so much better looking in person. You go, hmm. Mm, let's unpack that a bit. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's do a deep dive on what you said. <laughs> but here's the thing, though. I, I do media trainings uh, as part of what I do in my day job. And when you film someone and they have to watch themselves back, they're always horrified by what they look like. Oh, sure. And what they sound like and everything else. Yeah. yeah. It's bad. Because your version of your voice is is the only version – you're the only person who hears that version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm used to hearing mine all the time. But I'll get people who listen to the show back and they'll go, God, do I really sound like that? And I go, yeah, you sound like that to everyone else, not to you. And I say take comfort in that because you sound great. It just sounds different to you. So this is really weird and this is all like stupid inside baseball stuff. And it's Please like, delve in. Uh, no – so I think this probably happens to a lot of people whose voices are recorded for various purposes, but I won't recognize my own voice on the TV. You know, like if I've got my head down, I'm on my phone or whatever, and something pops up. Like a promo or something? Yeah. Nothing to me says, that's you talking. Okay. So that's absolute proof of what you just said. <laughs> that's too funny. Well, getting back to the public thing about, you know, you're, you're not going to go out if you're in too pissy a mood to interact with people. You've cultivated quite an online presence for yourself, which to me, seems intentional. Is there ever criticism that comes as a result of sort of increased engagement that bothers you? Like, what types of things can people say that really bother you? Because some of it has got to be part of the deal in terms of engaging the way that you do. I don't know that there's any of it that really bothers me. When somebody has a really legitimate point about something that we've screwed up or something that we've overlooked or something that I've said that came off the wrong way. That bothers me because of the fact that I said something that I shouldn't have said or that we've overlooked something. It doesn't bother me that they pointed it out. 
And the people who just troll, that doesn't bother me either. I love that. Okay. That is, that is manna from heaven. Like, this, the outrageous stuff that people say and the fact that they think they can say anything with impunity online is so delicious to me. Okay. I love it. So, I mean, there truly is nothing that, that ever bothers me. The only online social interaction that ever bugs me is when they're pointing out rightfully a mistake that we made. Cause I think, boy, why did I say that? Why did we do that? Cause you aspire for better. Sure. Yeah. Hey, you want, you want to treat people well. You want to do it right. And if you don't treat people well or you don't do it right, you want to get back to them as soon as you can sincerely and just say, hey, we, we could have, should have done better. Yeah, okay. I mean, that makes good sense to me. <laughs> the trolling thing, when we were setting this up, I emailed you, we confirmed time and location and all that, and you were out of office at the time. But in your out-of-office message, you included a message from a troll that you got in your inbox. Oh, yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. that. <laughs> what was that one? Oh, uh, jeez. It's, it's, it's not the first time I've done that. Do you have it? I, yeah, I could probably dig it up. Hold on. I think, I think, was it the woman who said that I was yucky to watch? And it was, it was like so bold, all caps, comic sans, you are yucky? Well, it was funny. I didn't delete it on purpose because I was so amused that this is your automatic reply out of office. It, here's what it says verbatim. <laughs> You are still and always will be obnoxious and yucky, all caps, to watch. I have to turn to another channel when I see your sorry face. And underneath that, it says, have a good one, Kyle. <laughs> so, my favorite part of that, I mean, the yucky in all caps in Comic Sans is really good. But I also love the you are and will always be because it's not just a judgment of how distasteful she thinks I am. She also believes that I'm incapable of personal growth. <laughs> like, like that to me is the best part where she's like, not only are you a worthless human being, but you are incapable of improving. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like a condemnation. Oh yeah, it's like she's sentenced you. Yeah, which God, that's too funny. I uh, get it every day too, and that's do the best you really? Part. Oh, it never it never stops. I wrote about pro wrestling on the internet for a while, and I got some trolls from that. Oh, sure, most of it's misspelled. Um, I imagine sort of what you're doing on the other side of that. Uh, you do get a lot of praise as well, and I'm thinking in particular about there was a HuffPost article saying that Kyle Clark and Brandon Ritterman should moderate every debate. Um, it was after the Gardner-Udall debate. That was a great debate. Yeah, that you guys did in 2014. And so how does that strike you when you get praise from all over the place and you know people saying you should be on a national stage? How do you react to that? And, and what does that mean to you? I mean, we appreciate it when people appreciate the work that we do. Sure. And especially when somebody is thoughtful about it. I remember that piece that you're talking about uh, that basically said, we see something happening in these locally produced debates that we wish we saw on a national level. Right. And that's, I mean, that's a fantastic compliment. That's really cool. I mean, does that translate into more interest in terms of working on a national level? It doesn't for me. Okay. Why is that? I mean, what what is it about this level that is sort of where your sweet spot is or where it seems to be? You know, I think a lot of it is specific to Denver and is specific to KUSA and Nine News in terms of the impact that a local media operation can have in a community to be a force for good and a force for accountability. I don't know that the national networks still have that heft. I know for a fact that they don't have the connection with the community that we have. And sure. that's so vitally important in terms of being in tune with people and being able to be responsive to their needs and being able to be useful to people. I feel like 
I would feel so disconnected at the mm, national level. Right. And I say that as somebody who hasn't worked at the national level. I just have friends who – there are a bunch of people in town who worked at the national level and came back to the local okay, level. I would love to, to dive into those people's minds and really get at why did you leave, Yeah, you know? And I think that's awesome that Denver is the kind of city that can attract – that type of talent yeah like that to me is is so encouraging because it means that one this is a great place to live but two the journalism scene here is vibrant enough that people who are talented enough to work at the national level i think of uh jeremy hubbard over at fox absolutely is willing to come back to town and work here like that says something about this town and about the journalists here i i'm inclined to agree and one of the things that they called out in that piece was your sort of ability to ask a very direct question. And the one that they called out was your sort of calling Senator Gardner on the carpet about his personhood amendment stance. And he seemed to be talking out of both sides of his mouth on that. And you directly asked him about it. And I think back to additionally, your questions of President Obama, your confrontation with uh, Representative Kaufman. When you do this, and, and I can tell you as a viewer, I appreciate it greatly because you see a lot of people sort of dance around, especially on the national networks. The, the types of questions that they ask allow that type of behavior. When you do that, do you ever have trepidation? Do you get nervous about it or do you sort of keep your eye on the prize? I do get nervous about it mainly because I just want to make sure that I'm still being fair while I'm being direct. Mm. And I want to make sure that if I get stonewalled, that I don't react emotionally because right. then that's automatically unfair. But my basic philosophy on it is I'm being paid to do a job on behalf of the public. They're being paid to do a job on behalf of the public. So this is just how it works. They, right, yeah. they, should, they should expect tough, direct questions. And if they don't get that, they should almost be offended. Mm. I, I mean, and I think if you look at some of those those interactions, take Senator Gardner, for instance, you know, that was a pretty tough exchange that we had. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I essentially said, you know, I think you are misrepresenting fact. That was a tough exchange. I saw him two weeks ago on a flight to D.C. We had fine conversation. Yeah. He's a professional. He understands how this works. Sure. He understands that accountability comes with the business. You know, I hope he doesn't feel that we were unfair or that we were grandstanding. That wasn't our, our, our intent. But boy, I got the feeling from him and Mark Udall, who took a couple licks in that debate as oh, well, yeah, absolutely. that they realized this is part of being in the big leagues. What do you think contributes to their perhaps not receiving as many questions like that as they might anticipate? Because I think the reaction you get online when you see people calling out in a good way what you do, what contributes to that to that not being more common? I think there could be a number of things. I think that there are probably too many practitioners of access journalism. Okay. Uh, not so much on the local level, but maybe more on the national level where so much is predicated on, on access and people are concerned that if I come across too strong, that okay. maybe I'll lose access. I don't see a lot of that on, on the local level. Sure. Um, there are some folks who just, as journalists and as people, 
don't like that semi-confrontational aspect. Right. Uh, you know, they're not asking those types of questions of politicians for the same reason that they're probably not mixing it up with coworkers <laughs> about any other issues or the reason why, you know, when, when their husband fails to, to fold his laundry for the fifth time, they don't say, honey, I need you to do better for me. It's just people's personalities. And then there's also the fact that there are fewer dedicated political reporters than there were before. People who, if not subject matter experts, are people who are immersed in it enough to be able to feel confident to ask that question Mm. and to ask Senator Udall, can you tell us where you're prepared to vote against the president? Knowing that there was not a set instance or were not more than one or two of them, and you better know those off the top of your head and be able to go back to those. You you have to have that base of knowledge that goes into the question. And I appreciate how smart media consumers are in Denver. Denver is a great city for smart media consumption. Denver, Minneapolis, Seattle, Austin, uh, uh, cities like that where you have a population that is engaged, they're civically minded, and they understand that there's more to a question than just the sentence that comes out of a journalist's mouth. They understand that there's a base of research and hopefully there's the preparation to then intelligently respond to whatever the the interviewee says. So what do you attribute that to, given your background? What what type of training led you to be engaged in this way? And, And what equipped you to want to be engaged in this way? To me... Accountability for elected officials, for the mechanisms of of government and civic society, as well as accountability for powerful business civic interests, that's at the core of what we do. If we don't do that well, what are we good for? Like, what does the rest of it matter? I understand that television is a medium that is great at entertaining people. And that's fantastic. And I hope that I entertain people. But if I'm not also informing them, what's the point? Well, what's the point indeed? I think back to something I read. Chuck Klosterman was talking about. He, he's one of my favorite writers. Uh, are you familiar with his I'm work? not super familiar with his work. I know the name, but I don't know his work well enough to talk about so, it. So he's written a number of books, and uh, mostly pop culture related, but he was also a music journalist at Spin. And... He said one of the things that he sees is, especially with music journalists, is they want to be friends with the band. Because if if you look at a band and it's a band that you like, if you're interviewing the White Stripes or something, you go, man, the White Stripes are really cool. I want them to like me. I, I understand the impulse. He has no interest in that. He doesn't care. And he says, I like to ask the question I'm most uncomfortable asking and asking it early because... I want to set the tone for the interview to where we're not going to be friends, but we're going to have a real conversation. Is that a similar sort of impulse that you're describing? Absolutely. Yeah. I really do not have interest in being friends with the people that I interview. I hope that they would respect me as as a person and as a professional, and I want to respect them as a person and as a professional. I try to be skeptical without being cynical. I think most of the time I'm cynical. I'm joking. Um, Right, right. I mean, I really do respect people who dedicate their lives to public service. I do not think that they are pigs at the public trough. Like, that's not my viewpoint. I think that, that they're in it for the right reasons no matter which side of the aisle they're on. So my goal is to seek out and find people in politics that I admire and that I respect, but my goal is not to be their friend. That's not my role. I'm not paid to be their friend. Right. This format that I do is a little bit different. It's a little friendlier of a chat. You know, I'm not doing hard-hitting journalism here, but I still like oh, I to- thought you had some stuff waiting for me. <laughs> You've got a piece of paper in front of you. I assume that you're going to really get into some stuff here. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've dug into your past, Kyle. Tell me about college. No, I'm oh, kidding. My. 
But I do like to ask some pointed questions because as a society, we owe it to ourselves to have conversations that matter. And so I don't want this to be fluff. You know, I'm not doing the Merv Griffin show here. Um, I, I do want this to be friendly, but I do like to get into issues, which I don't know. I feel like sometimes we miss that. We're either shouting past each other or we're talking about surface level stuff. And I, I'd like us to go just a little bit deeper. There needs to be a gear somewhere in between fake flattery, the faux lives that people present on Facebook, and then just like the ridiculous over-aggressiveness, right. mob mentality, torches and pitchforks of Twitter or email. There's got to be something in between, which is I respect you enough to challenge where you're coming from. Yeah. And the other thing, too, that I don't want to get lost in this, I think all of us have looked at somebody that we respect, whether we agree with them ideolo uh, ideologically or whether it's an athlete that we admire or somebody else who gets put in a tough situation with a tough question and they knock it out of the park and you just want to stand and cheer yeah. and you're just like, man, that was good. And you know what? I have those moments in interviews all the time where I ask a question and I hear the answer coming back and I'm just like, damn, that was masterful. <laughs> like that was unbelievably good. You may or may not have answered my question, but there was no better way for you to handle that. And I respect that. I like sure. that. And you know what? And I, I hope that that elevates discourse when people are forced to account for things. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You mentioned uh, having respect for the people who choose to serve the public. And I'm inclined to agree. I mean, there's there's a real deep vein of, call it populism. I, I think of it almost more as nihilism that's going on right now. Just blow it all up. I've seen posted on Facebook so many times, you don't like what's going on in Congress. 88% of its members are up for re-election this year. And... I don't know that that's exactly on target for me, but I'm pivoting a little bit. Do you get accused of partisanship? Oh, yeah, all the time. And how do you react to that? Because I, I haven't been able to discern a bent one way or the other. And so when people accuse you of being a Republican shill, like uh, some people did during the Bernie Sanders editorial that you did, mm -hmm. or of being a Democrat shill for the confrontation with Representative Kaufman. How do you handle that? How do you respond? I'm always looking for, for grains of, of truth in things. And feedback runs the spectrum from, you know, you're a shill for such and such party. I hate you. I, I can't take a lot out of that. There's, there's, not, um, there's not a lot to be gained there. But if somebody very thoughtfully says, why did you construct the question this way? And yeah. does that betray bias? Well, I'm going to look at that. I'm going to set that down and I'm going to look at mm. it. And maybe bias did inform that. Or maybe it unintentionally suggested that there was that there was bias there. I mean, I'm fascinated by confirmation bias. Like, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, and somebody in town, I forget his name. I wish I could give him credit. We were talking about confirmation bias the other day, and he tweeted to me. He goes, ever since I learned about confirmation bias, I see it everywhere. <laughs> and I just, I wanted to, I wanted to print that on a t-shirt and wear it around town. I'm like, oh, I love you. Uh, but... It so factors into everything that we say and do. And this is not me saying, oh, look, uh, you viewers and readers, look at how confirmation bias is hindering you. Well, journalists have confirmation bias, too. Sure. I, I, if we go into something looking to see it and then we find it and we're thinking, gee, howdy. No, no, no. This is just a fact of life. It's how our brains work. But I'm always going through emails suggesting political bias the same way I do any other feedback, which is 
is this person getting at a real point in a place where I can improve? Yeah. And if they're not, then you just smile and you have some fun with it. (laughs) And if they are, I've written back to a lot of people and said, you know what? You raise a really fair point. Sure. And that was inadvertent. Or I'm going to think about that. Or I'm going to print out your email and I'm going to tack it up at my desk so it's a visual reminder of what you said Hmm. for the next couple of months. Because I am looking to improve. One other thing that I love to do, and maybe this is just me trolling trolls, but sometimes when people just send me the really hyperbolic, you know, you leftist shill, you know, you Republican hack, I will drop their emails into one email, copy them both on the reply, (laughs) and ask them to sort it out amongst themselves which side I'm a shill for and then get back to me. I do that, like, I don't know, like three or four times a year, like maybe every three months I'll do that. Right. I've never had anybody get back to me. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, in my mind, I just hope that, like, one of these pairs of ideological opposites actually did communicate with each other about their shared hatred for me. That would be such a blessedly wonderful thing if that happened. I don't think it has, but... And they should open a No Kyle's Club. Exactly. Exactly. No Kyle's allowed. Yeah, and a coffee shop. That'd be all right. I mentioned your editorial on Senator Sanders. Mm Mm-hmm. You've done some fairly high-profile editorials, the one on Senator Sanders, the patio furniture one, obviously, which I don't know if you expected that to go as viral as it did. But I didn't expect anybody to care. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that thing went all over the place, didn't it? Every time it snows, I wake up to photos of patio okay. furniture. <laughs> it's kind of like the greatest and the most abjectly sad thing to ever happen to me because <laughs> If we leave this interview and I step out on Spear and I get hit by an RTD bus, right. that's what's going in my obituary. <laughs> oh, it's the guy who complained about patio right. furniture. But every time I find out how many millions more people have seen it elsewhere, it's it's funny. You know what? And it's it's a it's a it's become a fun way to connect with people because every year we're going to put up with snow and if we can share a laugh about it, why not? But well, you were you're talking about the editorials more in general. Yeah, the Senator Sanders one was it was basically the editorial equivalent of hey Bernie, call me. Yeah. Uh it was your supporters in Colorado are clamoring for more coverage of you, and they believe that the lack of coverage of you is indicative of our bias. Yeah, but, some institutional failing. Correct. But we can't get access to your rallies, mm-hmm. and you don't respond to our interview requests in the way that every other campaign does. So please, Bernie, call me, baby. You know, that's <laughs> right. essentially what the editorial was. And then his, resp- his supporters, most of them responded very angrily. Oh, yeah. With the exception, I will say, of one of his most prominent local organizers. This was at the grassroots level before they had campaign staff here. And she wrote, and she was so mad. And she she said, how dare you accuse him of not getting back in touch with you? They absolutely are responsive and this and that. And I said, can you help me get in touch with him? Mm-hmm. And I heard from her a week later, and she said, they won't respond to me. Uh-huh. Which just proved the point that we were saying, which is, that campaign initially was not structured to handle its own success. He was so right. much more popular than his campaign infrastructure was initially able to support. And because of that, it came across to some people as if the media was ignoring him when, in fact, his staff was just not set up yet to handle the media. Things have since improved enormously. Yeah. Well, okay. That's good. The thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you come to – do an editorial, what kind of leeway do you have? Because you don't see 
a lot of your colleagues doing editorials the way that you do. So how does that come to be? And what is the process like for that? Because I was going to yeah. reference the recent one also on weed culture on 420. Uh, one I really enjoyed about, you know, are we going to continue to do rallies in Civic Center Park when public consumption is illegal? How are you going to evolve this culture into the culture that you want to see? How does an editorial come to be for you? And, and how does that work here at Nine News? It comes about in a variety of ways. Uh, most recently, the one about 420. And you synopsized it well, which was basically just... I understand a 420 rally in Civic Center Park as a demonstration of freedom, but the people who are immersed in cannabis culture, where do they want the culture to go? Is that what they want out of the culture? That one came about honestly because I was just kind of riffing and I wrote some stuff down and showed it to a colleague here, uh, an executive producer who said, why don't you throw it on tape and just see what it looks like? So we threw it on tape and... It sat there for six hours, and we are kind of towards the end of the day, and I said to her, I said, how do we feel about this? Like, maybe I should throw this up on Facebook and just kind of get a conversation started? And that's the nice thing about having the different distribution platforms. That editorial did not air on 9 News. Okay. It only went on my Facebook page. It was pretty clear nothing about that editorial was 9 News taking a position. It was more of just kind of me saying, hey, as an observer – and an outside observer of cannabis right. culture, thank you, or a drug testing company, um, <laughs> saying, where do you guys want to go with this? I'm just – I'm curious about it. Yeah. I mean as as somebody who's not immersed in cannabis culture the way that I am in craft beer culture, I'm just really curious about the people who own this and the people who are deeply invested in this. Like what's their like 5, 10, 50-year vision for where cannabis culture is and how cool is it that we get a front row seat to it? Yeah. I agree, and I'm curious about it myself because, like you, I'm much more immersed in the craft beer culture, and I feel like it's evolved in a really interesting way. And I, I can't wait to see where it goes, especially with continued buyouts and you know continued consolidation. What does that mean for the the smaller guys? And something I wanted to ask you about in particular was I'm not going to ask you to take a position on this because you are a journalist, but some of the pros and cons as you see them of having. Uh, full-strength beer and wine in grocery stores, which is going to be debated and is is a hot item right now as we approach election season. So I'm not doing a lot of reporting on this, and I've been pretty open with people who have asked me about it online. Are you too close to it? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is not to say that I'm not ever going to do some reporting on it, but it'll certainly come with a disclaimer. Sure. I'm immersed in craft beer culture. I am interested in the success of Colorado small breweries. Many of these men and women are my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to do well. Um, and they are united almost to a man. In fact, I believe with the exception of one man. Yeah. Against the idea of full strength beer sales in, in grocery stores. Um, what I would really like to do, and I hope that this will come together, I would like to moderate a debate between oh, the sure. two sides. Um, with full disclosure of who I am so forth because I think that would be one it would be a great debate that I would love to have people see and hear and two just from a personal standpoint like that would be a great exercise and like can I control my implicit biases and so forth and I think I would hope that I'd be able to ask equally pressing questions of both sides yeah I I'm inclined to agree and one of the things that is interesting to me is I've had to think my position on this because in the interest of full disclosure, I I am not in favor of the proposals that I've heard for allowing uh, full-strength beer and wine in grocery stores. But 
I've had to evolve past, well, we've always done it this way. And anytime your reason is, we've always done it this way, you need a new reason. And I've thought about it further, and I've thought, while the regulations that we have are sort of strange in a vacuum, um, it has created a culture that is, I would call it unparalleled almost everywhere else to potentially sacrifice that. And it, it's not to say that it would entirely, but we need to consider, in my estimation, a more full package of what we're proposing. Because if we just allow full-strength beer and wine and grocery stores, and we don't allow liquor stores to then turn around and sell food, because as it stands, liquor stores can't even sell you a bag of pretzels when you buy a six-pack. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, feels incomplete. The proposals that I've seen and that I've read about and Apparently, it's still a fight amongst all the interested parties. I would need to see something better before I was in support of that. I I think that is a level of thoughtful consideration that you have to know that 99.5% of the voting public will never give this. (laughs) Right. I I mean, and it's not isolated to this issue. I mean, that's how things work. I mean, not everybody has the time and space in their life to sit down and consider these things at such great length. I mean— I think we should— Yes. I mean, ideally. Yes. I mean, we're, obviously, I'm in the deeper consideration business, and <laughs> and I mean, and and so are you. So right. I, I think I think that would I think that would be great. I, I think on this issue, a lot of it comes down to the idea of perceived versus actual harms mm. when it comes to to craft beer, and would it be as apocalyptic as they suggest that it it would be? It's pretty obvious what the impact on liquor stores would be. I mean, it would sure. it would be uh, roundly devastating to liquor stores. And then the question is, how much of that translates then to craft beer? I mean, mm. are the are the the big national grocery chains going to come in and knock down the wall between their supermarket and the liquor store next door to put in all the extra <laughs> shelf space to hold the craft beer? Something tells me they're not going to. Right. And I hope that that you know King Supers wouldn't get rid of the little frozen pizzas to make room for more craft beer because that would just create another supply and demand problem. So I don't know. It's it's difficult. Here's the bottom line. I think if you were to talk to most people who are fighting this, they would acknowledge that if it stays on the ballot in November, it's going to pass overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to point to any ballot propositions in Colorado in which the side with all of the money <laughs> loses to the side with none of the money. <laughs> and the money is with the grocery stores, and it's not with the craft beer and, and the, the liquor folks, with the exception of, I would point out, tax increases. Mm. Even really well-funded tax increase campaigns right. don't always work. Like this, Amendment 66. Exactly. But this is right. not a tax increase. So I think you would have to acknowledge, no matter where you stand on the issue, that if this goes to the ballot in November, I mean, the craft brewers, I mean, they're going to get smoked. I mean, that's just a that's fact. I mean, if you look at past history. Hmm. I'm interested in how you came to get into craft beer culture because, for me— I went to college in Fort Collins where you could get New Belgium and Odell's and Fort Collins Brewery on tap at any bar for a dollar any night of the week. And so you start trying new things. You know, I I remember the first time I had uh, 1554, that was much different. And I go, okay, this is, this is like a lager, but it's like richer. And you know, it's got this dark malt. And I thought, okay, well, what else is out there? And it took me a while to come around on hoppy beers. And once you do that, once you find, I call it a gateway IPA, mm-hmm. you go, okay, I'm in on this now. And for me, it was single wide IPA from Boulevard, okay. which uh, was really good. But how did you come to get in, into it? It was a great store. I okay. got into it because of a great store. Rochester, New York, 
uh, which is the city near the farm town where I grew up. I was working there after college as a reporter. It was my first job out of school. And interestingly enough, my first illicit beer that I remember was <laughs> technically a craft beer. Okay. It was a J.W. Dundee Honey Brown. Uh, J.W. Dundee, owned by Genesee, which is a big brewery out of Rochester. But I remember a friend sneaking me one of those when we were in junior high. And that's the first beer that I remember. So the romantic version is like, I've always been into craft beer, even when I was illegally drinking as an eighth grader. Sure. Um, but no, I mean, the, the truth is, you know, I mean, as I came of legal age, I was kind of at the same place where a lot of people are, which is you're poor and you're thirsty right. and you drink what people, you know, college kids without money and, you know, want beer drink. In terms of volume, I'll never catch up to the amount of swill. Oh, I, 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 I mean, uh, the, the put amount- it out of your head. Just don't even think about it. Yeah. Just put it aside. Probably wise. So I, so I, I got turned on to a store in Rochester, New York. It's still there called Beers the World. And they sell hundreds, if not thousands of different beers by the single. Oh, sweet. It's unbelievable. And to, to this day, when I go back to visit family, they pick me up at the airport. We drive to Beers of the World. I fill a couple of boxes, and then we and then we head to my folks' house. Spectacular. And that's how it works every single time. But when I walked into that place, I was blown away by the fact that such a thing even existed. So then I started trying things. I got into English bitters, and mm. I was like, oh, like look at this taste profile. And then I started to get into pale ales. And one of my gateways was Ellicottville uh, Pale Ale, which is so funny because the way that I remember that beer – and the way that it tastes today. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if the recipes change or if their supply processes have changed or if it's just my palate. But I think to myself, this is pretty good. But this beer blew my mind. You know, yeah. I, that, that happens. But I started running through that store and I'm still running through that store from <laughs> half a country away 12 years later. <laughs> That's awesome. Is that when you started keeping the notebook? Because the notebook is fairly well known, I would say, um, in, in craft beer circles. You've talked about it. How big is the notebook? When did you start keeping it? So the notebook is actually an Excel spreadsheet. Okay. Oh, so it's not a physical notebook? It's not a physical notebook. Was it at one point? No, it was never a physical notebook. Okay. When we first started trying some stuff, just to remember what we liked, some buddies of mine and I would throw tape on the back of the bottle mm. and write a letter grade, like a term paper, on the back of the beers with our initials and then a letter grade. Would you like walk around with masking tape? and? Yeah, masking tape in the drawer. You throw it on the back of the, okay. the beer bottle. Okay, And yeah. then it had a big closet at my apartment, so we just tossed a bunch of them in there. And that worked for like the first couple dozen. Well, sure, know? yeah. And then that way you could remember like, oh, what was that British beer that we had that we liked? And then that went on for a couple of months, and then it was like, you know what? We need a more efficient system. Sure. So this combined two of my great loves in life, craft beer and mild obsessive compulsive behavior. <laughs> and thus was born the Excel spreadsheet that I'm showing you now. Oh, holy hell. Um, and it has every beer listed by the brewery, by the name of the beer, my letter grade, friends' letter grades with their initials, the style, and then tasting notes that is on exquisite. a number of them. And the highlights indicate beers that I really like that we should go back to. And then the gray indicates which beers either my best buddy should try or I should try because one of us hadn't really liked it. Wow. So it's almost like a two-drink list. Okay. So is this like a Google Doc that you guys share? This is uh, – we Dropbox it back okay. and forth to each other a couple times a year. And last year at GABF, it passed 10,000. Yo. I've got, I think, 1,500 check-ins on Untapped. Mm-hmm. Are you on Untapped? I am not on Untapped. Okay. Um, I, I was doing this long before Untapped came along, right. and I saw it, and I'm like, "Oh, that's cool!" So I encourage my friends to do it. Sure. Uh, part of the thing that I like about 
my 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 beer journal, as I call it, the Excel file, is that it's private. Oh um, yeah, nobody sees it. I mean, there are three or four dudes that pass this around because part of my whole thing is it is not at all my business whatsoever to opine on what I think about somebody else's beer unless. Mm. I think that it's so good that I'm suggesting other people go try it. Okay. So it's almost like in terms of beers, retweets do equal endorsements is what you're describing to me. I've never thought about it that way, but that actually is a very fair way to describe it. I have – I at least I think – I'm trying to think back. I don't believe that I have ever publicly run down somebody's, somebody's beer. Because bottom line is that's somebody's hard work yeah. and taste is subjective. So maybe it's a tremendous beer that I just don't appreciate hmm. and – Beer changes over time. The number of places I've been to in town where I walked away and said, not impressed. I will never go to a place once. I will always mm. go back. Um, will I go back in six months, nine months, one year? It depends. But I will always go back because I want to see, did you fine-tune it? Did you dial it in? Yeah. You know, one thing I'm struck by that you just said, though, that's someone's hard work. That's, you know, so you don't want to criticize them publicly. Yet you're willing to absorb a lot of public criticism for the things that you work very hard on. It's a different business. It, it is, but I, philosophically, is it really that different? I also think it's very different that me as a public person, mm. that I would be publicly criticizing somebody else's work. Okay. Like, I'm not bothered. Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. I'm not bothered by my friends and, and fellow craft beer drinkers, you know, putting up a nasty gram about somebody's beer. <laughs> right, right. Sure. Oh, okay. If that's how you want to play, that's how you want to play. I think it's, I think it's a little bit different for me because I'm more public. No, that's fair. You also have a seller, right? I do. Okay. Can you tell me, like, what are some of your trophies that you have there? The stuff that I'm willing to let go bad because I'm too scared to drink it because <laughs> it has such sentimental value. Uh, there's a Cantian Iris 05. Oh my God. A Cantian Iris, really? That I bought my first month in Denver, August 2007. <laughs> wow. And, and, and I, for those who don't know, that's, that's a Belgian. I mean, that. It's a beautiful beer. That's like a 14 point buck on your wall. It, it, it is. And I told myself, I am going to save this for a special occasion. And how sad is it that in the subsequent nine years, I have not had anything special happen to me. Love you, honey. Happily married five years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Around town. Okay. So I I know you have a public profile and we're not going to criticize anyone. No, no, no. Light me up. Oh, you want me to light somebody else? No, no. (laughs) if, If someone were coming into Denver and they said, I want to I want to have five really great Denver beers. What would you point them to? City limits Denver, Denver uh, metro area. Denver metro area, sure. Five really great beers. Like what what are some things that that you that you look at and you go, "Yes, that is exceptional and I will go out of my way to get that." Hmm. Honestly, the the only hard part about that question is paring it down. Sure. You know, paring it down to five great things. So I'm trying to think of five great things I've had number, lately that the, I that I that the I, number is arbitrary. I don't care about the number. Sure. No. No. I I understand. Um, the post Howdy Pills. Oh God, my favorite right now. I love that beer. It's it's so nuanced. It's absolutely beautiful, and it reminds me. Uh, people ask all the time, "What's your favorite beer?" No such thing. Something I haven't had. Yeah. Give me something I haven't had. Um, but. 
a beer that's in my fridge year-round is Victory Prima Pills. Uh-huh. I love a great Bohemian Pilsner, great Happy Pills. And when I found Howdy, I'm just like, why, hello there. <laughs> good, <laughs> How, good to see you. <laughs> I, same deal for me. If if I have if I if Howdy's not available, I'll go to the Pivo Pills from Firestone yep, Walker. Yep, very similar. Outstanding, great beer. Very similar. Uh, that's that's a great one. Uh, Incredible Petal IPA from mm. Denver Beer Co. I think that's the best thing that they make. I love their attitude there that they're constantly throwing stuff against the wall to yeah. see what's I get that it turns some people off because they want that predictability. They sure. want every beer to be a big winner. That doesn't matter to me. Like, I want to see you try something. Like, yeah, give out, it to me. Get out there and shake it. Like, let's <laughs> see it, you know? So they're, they're, always, they're always trying something new there. Honestly, what happens is I tend to overlook the, the great stuff that's been around forever and you take it for granted. Mm. Uh, new Belgium Abbey Double. Oh, yeah. I think is a tremendous beer. Is it my favorite style? Absolutely not. But if somebody says, like, I want to try a great double, oh, go have the New Belgium Abbey Double. That's, that, that's a terrific beer. See, and that one's not for me. There, there's too much of a banana note in uh-huh. it for me. And, and if there's a banana note, I'm out. That's, Done. That's one of my... That's one of my bugaboos. Hey, why don't I list a really popular beer that nobody will disagree with? Uh, Comrade Superpower. Oh, jeez. Is a tremendous beer. If somebody's passing through town and they're like, what can I grab here that I can't grab other places? Yes. That's one place that I'll refer them just because they're not going to be able to, to get that someplace else. Station 26 did a single hop Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Or Amarillo. And uh, it, it reminded me of the Superpower. And I go, oh, God, the Amarillo hop. It's hard to get. But it's great. Station 26 is doing great stuff. I'm also a visual geek, and their branding is beautiful. I mean, I, I, I love it. I mean, I, I try not to, to wear beer gear around town, like yeah. especially local places. Sure. I have like one local beer places t-shirt. Like I wear a lot of out of town stuff, mainly just to spark conversations with people like, Oh, if you ever go to New Jersey, you got to try cane, you know, stuff like that. I do uh, the same thing. <laughs> and, and I don't want to, I don't want to look like I'm shilling for somebody in town. Yeah. The station 26 stuff, like, I just need to like get it tattooed on me right. because it's so visually gorgeous. Yeah, and their tap room with the hoses as the background yep. and and the, the firehouse. The, yep. Yeah, the knobs where you can put your bags and stuff. It's it's beautiful and w- probably my favorite tap room, which is nice because it's my neighborhood place. Yep. Yep. No, that's a great place to hang out. And it, it, this town is so ridiculously blessed with with really great stuff. Uh, if all right, so if I'm going to do a shout out on a couple more of my of my top fives. Mm. Give me a style. <laughs> Hit me with a style. <laughs> okay, let's go. Uh, let's go. Dark beer stouts, stout slash porter. Odell Cutthroat. Mm. I love that beer. Yeah, that's that cool. beer is easy. Um, that beer is a great experience for the ABV. If you're looking for something darker and you want to have a couple and still feel like you, that's a, <laughs> that's a good beer. That's a good beer to pick up. That's a solid one. I, I think I know what you're going to say when I say this, but sours, wild ales, at Crooked Staves, well, it's, yeah. it's bomb diggity. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the, yeah, they're there's the, there's a game, and and to be honest with you, my palate has a very difficult time differentiating characteristics between sours. Yeah, um, I, I'd agree. So more than singling out specific individual beers that I, I like from places, then you know I'm more apt to just say. Go to Crooked Stave. Yeah, go do Crooked Stave. They, they will do you correctly. Yeah, pale ale. Mm. I don't drink a ton of pale ales, to be honest. Really? With you. Um, what about? Okay, so I just this is my latest go-to. It's the Repeater at Ratio. 
Yeah, that's a good beer. Uh, another one that popped into my head. I think um, Clintonian is a pale. Mm. And now I'm. Yeah, I can't remember where that's from. Now anything. I'm spacing them. They're on. They're on Tennyson. Uh, this is going to kill me. Don't put this on TV. Cold arms. <laughs> Don't put this on TV. As we sit here in a TV studio <laughs> on your podcast. And the fact uh, that I spaced on called arms for ten seconds, like I'm never going to get served there again. I'm going to walk in and they're just going to stare past me. You know what, Kyle? I'll, I'll edit it. You'll sound like a genius. Beautiful. It'll be perfect. No, call to arms. The the Clintonian is great, and call to arms Baltic Porter. Oh. Easily makes my top five. It's a style that you don't ever see everybody brew, and they do it beautifully. But Did you say Baltic Porter? It's Baltic Porter. Um, also at Barrels, Riga yeah, yeah. Um, is, is a good Baltic Porter. I haven't had that. Um, yeah, Barrels, down. that's down in Rhino. Mm-hmm. And Barrels is doing good stuff, too. Have I listed every ratio beer yet? <laughs> no. Hold Steady with Coffee mm. is yeah. is ridiculous. Um, the Dear You French Saison. Dear You is absolutely spectacular. Bill Husted, who used to write for the paper, yeah. he and I hung out, and he interviewed me for a piece, and he's like, where do you want to meet? We can go have a drink. So I'm like, I'm going to take Bill Husted to a beer place. Right. I don't think that man had had a beer in 30 years. <laughs> you know, <laughs> loves a good glass of wine, loves sure. a good cocktail, had not had a beer. I ordered him the Dear You, and he claimed to have enjoyed it. Okay. Well, good. That's You call that a victory. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. What other styles? So, I mean, we've covered pills. We've covered dark. We've covered pale. Uh, you mentioned incredible petal IPA, uh, wheat, not one of my, not one of my go-tos because if it's that warm out, I'm going to my hoppy pills. Although Mm. I just had last weekend, new Belgium's hoppy blonde. Okay. Um, which is style adjacent. Sure. Yeah, we'll allow it. That's a good beer. Okay. The hoppy wheat that I really like, uh, Denver beer company does a good one. That's uh sunrise or what is that called? I know, I know when you're talking, I can um, picture the can. It's some sun something or other. It's like a blue and orangish or blue and yellow yeah, can. Sun drenched. That's it. Yep. Yeah. And then, um, the other hoppy weed I like is Ophelia from oh, Breckenridge. Yeah. That's a great beer. Yep. Breckenridge just bought by AB InBev. Uh, Indeed. wasn't it crazy, right? How about that? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, it was, I was waiting for one in Colorado to go and it took a long time. So, well, of- I don't know. I, uh, I've had my homebrew operation up for sale for close to a year now <laughs> at a very fair asking, <laughs> and AB is completely disinterested, which hurts my heart. <laughs> well, we are, uh, we're approaching time. I, I know you got to do the news. When are you on today? Uh, when am I on? I'm on at uh, 6, 9, and 10 today. Okay. Um, if you need to go over a bit, we can go over. It's not key. If you want to cut down for time. If you okay. want to do another five ten, we're good. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, okay. So that that brings me to uh, another question: What is your schedule like? Do you know what it's going to be? How far in advance do you know what it's like? And when do you get to the studio? And then when do you typically go home? Like, what's what's an average week look like for Kyle Clark? There is no typical day or average week because it's all driven by events, things that we know are going on. Uh-huh. Last week, we had a debate. Uh, the eight candidates on the Republican side running for U.S. Senate to face Michael Bennett. Uh, a lot of long days then, a lot of 12, 14-hour yeah. days then. But that's all good because that's how it works. You just prepare for those things. If I'm not going out to report a story or have anything specific to work on, there are days that I, I'm in here as late as 2 o'clock um, okay. to then go on it at 6 and go on it at, at 9 and 10. 
the anchoring is kind of the, the, the mile posts, the set posts in my day. If I'm not in the chair, there has to be a provision made for somebody else to be in the chair. But it's all of the other reporting that I'm doing, whether I'm reporting by phone or by text or out there in person, that's the color of the day. Okay. And that's the stuff that shifts and changes every day, whether I'm working on preparing for a debate. We recently did an hour-long special, a doc on Colorado's four national parks. In yeah, that was great. Year. Thanks, man. That, that was such – it was literally a breath of fresh air to visit each of those parks in two of the lesser visited seasons to try and get people to go out and experience them again. Everybody's been to Rocky in the fall. Have you been to Rocky in the wintertime? Have yeah. you been to Rocky in the spring? You know, uh, a lot of people have been to uh, Mesa Verde uh, in the summertime. But in the wintertime, when they light up the luminarias in the cliff dwellings and it looks like there's people living inside of there, it's trippy. It's really cool stuff. So that's those are the things that I get excited for. I don't get excited for the anchoring. It is what it is. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's sort of like it's like the meat. It's the nut of what you do, right? I mean, it's... You, you called it the, the signpost for the day. It's sort of what everything else is structured around. Is that fair? It is. I, I, I tend to think of it as, as more like the reporters are the chefs and the anchors are the wait staff. Hmm. And oh, yeah. the joy of preparation, uh, that joy of creativity, mainly lies on the front side, on the reporting side. That said, I enjoy writing. Any word that comes out of my mouth was either written or rewritten and edited by me, so or so HR has told me. <laughs> um, so I, I take some joy in that, but the ability to truly craft a dish from scratch—that's in the kitchen. Okay, you know, yeah. that's on the reporting side. To that point, this is something I've been dying to ask you ever since. I mean, we started talking about this a while ago, and I had it in my head because I was watching you. I think at four o'clock. And at one point, it was this little throwaway thing. I can't even remember what it was pertaining to, but I swear to God, you dropped a Pete Holmes reference. <laughs> I heard from so many people about that, and that's when I learned who Pete Holmes is. It was entirely incidental. Are you serious? Entirely incidental. Okay, so that that was not intentional. I and I remember it, and I can't remember what the subject matter was. But you go, the competition for that is going to be fierce, Pierce. And one of his most famous jokes is Pier is it's Pierce. As I'm sure you're well aware. I now. am now <laughs> well aware. Okay, so that was not. It was not. No, that's when I learned about him. Wow. Um, I think my wife and I tweeted at you about it. I, a lot of people actually got in touch with me about that, but that actually has been the secret to my limited success, which is that it has come entirely ass backward and by accident. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With the schedule that's never the same, is that challenging on your personal life? No, because I have an awesome wife who totally gets it okay. and absolutely understands how that works. She used to work in the business. Okay. And to be honest with you, because I work evenings and she works something like a normal person's shift. Right. What does it matter to her what I'm doing when she leaves for work? Does it matter if I am spending four hours working in the morning from home before I come into work? She'll right. care. She's at work, you know? <laughs> right. But anybody who is in... This business, just like anybody else anywhere in town who works nights or works overnights, their family pick up the slack and meet them halfway. Okay. This is an old school question that I used to ask all my guests and sort of, you know, as time goes on, your show changes. But it's something I'm interested in here yeah. because you have um, some degree of, of local acclaim. For anyone looking to get into journalism or television journalism, what would you say is the most important thing to do, to be, to have – what is the path to success, and for you, how do you see that 
uh, unfolding for someone who is aspirational in the business. This is a really, really difficult time for anybody to get into journalism or communications. It is a rough time. But here's the thing. There are great opportunities for the future because people's desire for information has never been stronger. They're just not interested in having it force-fed to them the same way that it was force-fed to their parents and their grandparents. And why should they? Why should journalism, media, TV news be the last industry that doesn't evolve? It's ridiculous. So what I would tell people is, for starters, fake is done. It's over. There are so many people trying to make it in the business who are doing an imitation of what they saw on television when they were kids. Hmm. That game is over. People want you to be real with them. That has the unfortunate side effect that a lot of people are going to hate you. (laughs) But if you can keep the number at 49% or lower, you can stay in the game. Right. People just want you to be real, which means not only saying what you know, but also what you don't know, why you don't know it, and how you're going to go about getting them a better answer than, I don't know. Hmm. And more than anything, especially in the business of broadcasting these days, it's not enough to just be solid, because there's so many really solid, great people out there. You have to be distinctive. Mm. You have to figure out what's going to set you apart and go out there and make sure that people see it every single day. Denver is blessed because we have people like that working at every single TV station in town. I think of uh, Lionel Benvenu or Marshall Zellinger over at Channel 7. I think of Vic Lombardi, who just left four. Mm. I think of Jeremy Hubbard over at Fox 31. All people who just come through the TV and grab you. And they're ridiculously talented, yes. But they're also really genuine, like, interesting people. And when when you watch them or when you interact with them on social media, you you know you're getting the real deal. Yeah. That's the key. That's awesome. I think that's good advice. I'll tell you what. I am sitting here in Adele's chair, uh, or at 4 o'clock, it'll be... Kim Christian's Kim's chair, right. So I assume that they'll want it, and we need to clear out this studio. Eventually, yes. <laughs> so, uh, which, by the way, it's been a pleasure sitting here. I, this the, the new studio is gorgeous, and so it's, it's fun to sit here. And I've been in new studios before, and they always look smaller than you think they're going to be. This one actually feels bigger. I don't know what that means. Better looking in person, you're saying? <laughs> Let's <laughs> delve into that. I'm saying your studio is better looking in person. Very good. <laughs> uh, but to wrap up, we do plugs on the show. So where can people find you? I suspect uh, most people know where they can find you. Find but- me on the Twitter, at Kyle Clark. Find me on Facebook, Kyle Clark. I'm wearing my grandfather's jacket that he wore to my dad's high school graduation. They let me wear it for No Shave November when I grew out a beard. It's this great 70s-tastic jacket, uh, so I'm the obnoxious-looking guy on Facebook. If you want to find me on TV, you don't have to. 6, 9, and 10 at 9 News. Hey, and, uh, and keep your eye out because we're working on something new. I wish I could talk about it more now. We're working on something new. Basically, imagine if they let the inmates run the asylum. Wow. All right. I don't know what that means specifically, but uh, I'll look forward to it, certainly. Picture my Twitter and the Twitter of other people that you, you like in town and you like to talk to on the TV box. Wow. All right. Good to know. It's going to be fun. 
I can't wait. Well, Kyle, I'll tell you what. This was an enormous pleasure for me. This was incredibly insightful. And I just wish you continued success. You're a pleasure to watch. Thank you so much. This was uh, this was great fun. It was so much fun, it didn't even require a beer. <laughs> That's right. Maybe later. Indeed. And that closes out episode 95 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Kyle Clark for taking some time out of his busy schedule. I can't wait to see what's coming next for him. He teased a new show. I don't know anything about it. He didn't tell me even when the mics were off. So that's how closely he's keeping it to the best. So stay tuned to him. Check him out on Facebook and Twitter. He's enormously entertaining on both those platforms, and I encourage you to follow him. That's linked on the blog post on johnofalltrades.us. Let's pay a couple of bills here while we're at it. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. Whether it's campaign season, whether it's not, their services will help you reach the people that you are trying to reach. They will target your message to the people that need to hear it most, and they will do it for a cost-effective figure. They are fantastic. I can't speak highly of them enough, and they host the John of All Trades podcast, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, training, content, and engagement at deftcom.us. D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. This was a great episode. I got another strong one coming right behind it. It's coming up next week. Check us out on the social media platforms, J-O-A-T pod for all four of those, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Snapchat. And next Monday on Facebook exclusively will be an episode preview. So until I see you back here next week, thank you for joining us and say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.